This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera artist-in-residence Matthew O'Coin. O'Coin's opera Crossing, which tells the story of poet Walt Whitman's time volunteering in the medical corps during the Civil War, will be presented in concert at the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Beverly Hills on May 25 and 26 as a co-production of L.A. Opera Off Grand and the Wallace. O'Coin and I will talk about how he balances the dual lives of being a composer and a conductor and what it takes to get into the head of this larger-than-life figure in American history. Whitman's an operatic character. He's got the loudest voice, so to speak, in, in the history of American poetry. He's, he's always kind of yelling from the rooftops about who he is and the greatness of the American spirit and how we need to break down all the barriers, the customs of European life. Your position here at LA Opera, we talked about it sort of at the beginning of, of your time with the company. Um, how has that position, artist in residence, has that evolved in any way? Um, how is it How is it going? And um, uh, it's such a unique thing in, in opera. I don't know of another similar position in an opera house. No, it, it, it feels really tailor-made, and I remain grateful for that. It has evolved. The position certainly has evolved. I think part of the point of it, of it being artist in residence rather than either composer or conductor, is that we could both see where it went. And I mean, so far, I've done everything from conducting Philip Glass to, you know, conducting Nosferatu at the Ace Hotel and doing community tours with the young artists and now now Rigoletto. So it's been really great. and, And it's allowed me to get to know the city in a much deeper way, you know, to perform all over the place and to get get exposed to a, a, a wide variety of rep. And so it it's great. It's been great. Um, <laughs> Composers who also conduct, conductors who also compose. Here you are, you know, in a, a long tradition of, of these sort of dual lived, dual uh, careered uh, folks. Um, and they all talk about, you know, that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've talked many times with, with Essa Pekka mm-hmm. about, you know, I, as you say, I have my cave. I have to go away. Yeah. I have to forget everyone else's music mm-hmm. so that I can write my own. And then I have to come back. And then sometimes I come back and I'm thrown into, you know, Mussorgsky and <laughs> Beethoven. And yes. it's like, who are these guys? Is, do you find that... Um, you have to be rigid about compartmentalizing what you're doing? You have to be fierce uh, in guarding your time, I think, because performing, uh, there's a lot of responsibility. You have to be rested. Um, and there are all these kind of ancillary responsibilities. You know, meetings can <laughs> can, can arise. And yeah, when, I, when I'm composing, you know, don't talk to me before 3 p.m. <laughs> really, it, it's uh, the idea of a breakfast meeting. No way. But... <laughs> uh, and it's true that when you're in the middle of a of a performing project, you actually have a responsibility to give yourself over to the music that you're that you're performing and have that be in your head. And when you're composing, you can't have anyone else's music in your head. So I think I would I would agree with mm-hmm. with, with my esteemed 
colleague Esapeka about that. So yes, for example, the last what four or five months, I've haven't picked up a baton at all, mm. um, and now we've just begun this intensive rehearsal process, and that always takes a few days. It's a little bit like uh, like getting the bends, you know, divers. Who, if, if you <laughs> surface too quickly, you'll get the bends. And the great thing about opera is um, you have a few weeks of staging rehearsals to kind of get into the into the flow of it. The times when I've had to do you know, a week with an orchestra after a long period of composing, it can be a bit of a shock because these are, you know, it's neural pathways. You know, it, it's a very physical thing. And I do find it takes a, a few days to, to slide back into it. So I'm, I'm mid-slide right now. <laughs> um, we were talking on a, on a podcast recently about, you know, looking at a, a score with, with composers' eyes. And I loved what you were saying about you look at someone else's music and you you want to look at the decisions as to why that note or yes. you know why that phrase or you know what was what was the process like and that's why you know when you put it into words like that for me you know i'm thinking like well yeah that totally makes sense because i had sort of an epiphany a few years back that like all of my favorite conductors are also composers really and i think like that's i think that's why yeah. um is that you know composers look at music differently from the rest of us um and i just think that's such a cool thing well i'm i'm glad to hear you say that i mean they definitely are different skills i would not i would not ever say if you're a composer then you can conduct you know it, it certainly is a is a technique all its own but um yeah it, it, it feels alive i think if you have experience i i love so you know in so many other musical traditions the act of composing and the act of performing are the same thing, mm. you know. And I, I spent so much time as a jazz pianist in high school. I'm just not good at at uh, putting myself in any kind of box. And so I wanted, even though this is my field now, to keep that that spirit. And I, you know, if if I ever someday end up on the teaching end of things, I, f I feel like that's going to be my soapbox. Is you know, uh, helping young performers. You know, making sure that everybody gets in touch with themselves as a creator. That that feels like an important part of your of your psyche. Mm -hmm. um, is there enough space um, for composers today to be composers? Or do just the way that the, the structure is set up, do you have to find ways to, to perform and, and do other mm -hmm. things? Or, you know, I, I'm trying to think of like, you know, I guess we don't remember the performing side of composers of the past as much. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Mahler conducted and Beethoven played and Mozart played. And, yeah. But is the the reality for a composer right now, is it a good reality? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, I haven't been on this scene for all that long, but when I've talked to certain really experienced, you know, I've talked to John Adams about this, and, and, and John maintains that many more young composers today are making a living by composing. Mm than they were when he was coming up. And I, I do believe that. But there is, you know, there's a there's a real inequality of compensation problem um, within the field, you know, just based on what's valued. I, you know, and I, I say this as someone who does conduct, but conductors are way overpaid. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that as like a music director. I'm not like one of these <laughs> Ferrari... Ferrari driving, uh, as we were as we were discussing, somebody asking for a Ferrari as payment for conducting. Um, it, it's really not 
fair. And I think composers do kind of get the, the shaft as far as um, so, sort of just fair compensation for effort. When you think about how long it takes to, to create a 20-minute orchestral piece, soup to nuts, a conductor could make that kind of money in a couple weeks. So it's, it, is, it is tough. And of course, then there's the question of, of, of performers' um, mm-hmm. compensation. But I think actually performers, you know, members of an orchestra, have a much easier time making a living than than composers do. So, yeah. I think it's it, it's it's better than it has been at other moments in the past century. But it's still unequal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, putting some concrete numbers on some of this, like abstractly. Sure. So, like a music director of a major American orchestra is going to make between one and two million dollars, probably. Exactly. Um, uh, musicians in the top level orchestras are going to make. Well, the pay is going to start at around probably one hundred and twenty-five, hundred and forty thousand dollars, and then, you know, concert master is going to make half a million. Three, yeah, three times. Um, What does a composer make for writing, you know, a concerto or something, for example? Uh, It varies hugely, hugely. But for a, a, a big piece that could take you, I don't know, half a year's work for an orchestra, say. You could make as little as you know, twenty thousand dollars for for. I'm talking about a piece that would take you so much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in in opera, there's the possibility in the big companies that it that the commission could could be a, a six figure commission. But then you're talking about a multi year project, and and those commissions are are really rare. Mm. You know, smaller smaller ensembles uh, commission in a kind of honorarium way. And it's not the fault of, of the ensembles. It's just the reality of, of, of the budgets. Which makes the position here at LA Opera, at least from an outsider's perspective, of where you're doing many different things, that, that makes a, you know, a great deal of sense. But it also stretches your time. A bit, though. It, it actually <laughs> it feels, in a nice way, a bit like you know being... Uh, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous. But being a sort of church or court composer... <laughs> you know, one of those people who sort of they do everything. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. they uh, they yeah okay. You have to you have to go coach the singer on this, and then you, you you conduct this performance, and then of course you have to compose a lot. But what I love about it is that actually composing is part of my job here. Um, when I'm when I'm sitting at home working, it's not I'm not noodling. Well, I am noodling, <laughs> uh, but it's but it's integral. And I, I so I do hope that these kinds of holistic positions become more common. Because composers have a lot to offer in terms of perspective as, as coaches or as teachers. What drew you to the subject of, of Walt Whitman uh, volunteering his time to be a, a medic, to be a nurse in, in the Civil War? Well, Whitman's, a, Whitman's an operatic character. He's, uh, he's got the loudest voice, so to speak, in, in, in the history of American poetry. He's, he's always kind of Know, yelling from the rooftops about about his who he is and 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 the greatness of the American spirit and how we need to break down all the barriers the customs of of, of European life and I knew his poetry and and loved at least the, the, a few poems but the harder I looked at Whitman as a person the more I realized that he was complicated and this and the persona and the personae that that he adopted they're just that you know that they had to have been hiding someone more vulnerable 
And so the, the question arose for me of, okay, what would it take to have to create this kind of quasi-heroic Paul Bunyan-ish persona? And also the, the strangeness of the life decision to drop everything and spend three years volunteering in, in the war hospitals. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, selfless, generous thing to do. But also, he might have been running away from something. He, he reinvented himself so constantly that I, I do see this as one more reinvention. And then there's the reality that he was on intimate terms with a lot of the soldiers, and he was a middle-aged gay man surrounding himself with relatively helpless 19- and 20-year-olds. Um, and he ended up in a relationship with someone that he met there. And so it's a complex <laughs> uh, and also I became interested in the the setting of these hospitals, which is kind of like a purgatory. Mm. You're not really in this world. You're not really out of it. You're trapped there. Nobody knows if you're going to survive. Nobody knows if you're going to make it out. Um, and everybody has something they desperately need to say. Um, everybody has a letter to write and everybody has a message for the outside world. So I think Whitman went into this space thinking of himself as this kind of healer this this kind of benevolent presence and then at least in my opera over time he realizes that he's stuck there just like everyone else and that he's he's actually not uh as sure of of who he is do you get to be a a psychologist as uh, as a composer um how do you look deeply into who Walt Whitman was and what he was struggling with psychologically? How do you access that inner side of him that was probably pretty hidden? Well, of course, my Whitman is a fictional creation, but he left us a lot of clues, both in his diaries and in the poems. And the diaries are fascinating for number of reasons. One is that he, even though he's expressing sympathy and horror at the, at the loss of life and the bloodshed and the suffering, he also seems to appreciate it in an aesthetic way, which is really uncomfortable. He's such a poet that he appreciates the beauty even in things that are really not beautiful Hmm. of young men dying basically and so that really fine line between sympathy and aestheticization of suffering became a real sticking point for me that's something that another character actually accuses him of the 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 opera really hinges on a very close relationship that whitman develops with a young soldier who's actually a confederate soldier in disguise we we figure out eventually and uh this kid is just like a wounded animal, just like really on edge. And at a certain point, he explodes at Whitman and kind of says, you're a pervert, you're a parasite, what are you doing here? You're just, you're enjoying this. You're actually just like sitting here enjoying this. Um, You're not this kind of, you're not a sage, you're not like a healer. And I think that's one way to, to look at it. Another sort of clue is this amazing poem, The Sleepers which Whitman wrote a few years before the Civil War. It's really a crazy poem. It begins with with him imagining himself as kind of the only person who's awake in a world of 
sleepers. He pictures sleep as this democratizing force. It's this great thing. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like the kid's book, Everybody Poops, you know. <laughs> it's everybody sleeps. Uh, uh, he, he says, you know, the murderer sleeps. Even, the, even someone who's committed a crime sleeps. The master sleeps and the slave sleeps. And then he says, and I walk through the dark perceiving it. So he's, it's this amazing image of himself as this ultimate outsider. And of course, it has to do with his sexuality. And then it goes into this hallucinatory section where he kind of, he imagines himself as, if I'm reading it correctly, he imagines himself as a woman who gets impregnated by a kind of succubus or the spirit of night it's a crazy wow. i have no idea how this poem got published in the 1850s in america it's not oh captain my captain it is not oh captain my <laughs> captain so he goes on this bizarre hallucinatory journey and then he imagines himself tending to wounded soldiers and this is before the civil war and it, he kind of arrives at this peaceful place of imagining himself taking care of of people and that told me that for him it was really a deep psychological need to care for others, and that it was a way of him dealing with his outsider status mm. and his chameleonic status that maybe if he could, he wasn't a soldier. He wasn't uh, the image of, of straight male masculinity. But if he could be around it <laughs> as a healer, as a, you know, kind of vicariously uh, being a part of it, I just find it mm. so poignant and so rich. Yeah. Is it that um, poignant and innocent, or is there, um, as you say, a, a darker side there, a, a more predatory side? I think it's there. I think it's there as an element. Um, one of my teachers was the poetry critic Helen Vendler, who's, who made the point that, you know, even if he was attracted to his patients, you know, that wouldn't have sustained somebody through three years of, 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 of the war. It was just, it was too awful. You, you would, if you wanted to go cruising, you would have found a <laughs> more pleasant place to do it. So I do think he did it with love, but I don't think he was necessarily honest with himself about the mixture of of impulses. He was a an opera fan. He was. He saw operas. He loved operas. Um, does that play a role in in your work at all? Not really, not not really in 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 terms of how he's depicted. But I do love the, the. There's a great letter that he wrote to one of his, you know, one of these young men that he that he befriended, um, who was a construction worker or some kind of of day laborer, who had never seen an opera. And, and Whitman is describing opera to someone who's never seen it, which is amazing. And he's saying, well, it's singing, but it's not. It's not singing like you do around a campfire. It's like you've never heard of. It's so sublime and. It's great. It, it, you know, we should use this as a way to get attract people to opera. It's like Walt Whitman making a case for it. Um, we should get an actor to read uh, the letter. You know, totally that'll, should. That would be a great podcast. You should just pop up on street corners in L.A. So <laughs> as publicity for this production. Yes. Um, we just did the piece at BAM earlier this season, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And Whitman actually went to operas at mm. the predecessor to BAM. It was, it was a different building, but pretty much on the same site. So that's that, that's pretty cool. And there's an operatic quality to his poetry, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Do we know, since Rigoletto was just in the opera house, um, mm -hmm. do we know, it came to New York in 1855, any chance he was there? Do, would we have any way of knowing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know with that piece specifically. Yeah. Uh, we do know that he loved early Verdi. 
he talked about Hernani and he was a big Donizetti fan. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's bizarre that, <laughs> that this poet who imagines himself as every man uh, was at one point, he was kind of a dandy, which was, I, I'm quite sure it's the equivalent of being a hipster. <laughs> he was a he, he had a, the beard for he it. He had the beard for it. Yeah. Um that I If think, only skinny jeans had been invented. <laughs> he would have looked good enough, totally. That that uh I really think that in in the Brooklyn in the Brooklyn of the 1800s wearing fancy clothes and and going to these Donizetti operas was like, you know, going to a vampire weekend concert in, <laughs> in the Brooklyn of of today and and that was very much his scene at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, when this performance uh, was announced, it didn't take long for tickets to sell out, and they added another performance. First of all, this got to feel good. Um, yeah. And secondly, does that say anything about uh, people's hunger for, for new music and specifically new opera? Well, definitely in this town. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say we're, we, are, we are performing it in a, in, in a smaller theater, so I, I don't want to toot my own horn too much about about that but I'm, I'm thrilled that there is such a, a desire for, for people to, to see the piece you know I, I first came to LA just only a few years ago and the first real creative project I did here was was writing a piece for LACO and uh, it was funded through that amazing Bernie Sanders-ish sound investment program <laughs> and that was I had to pinch myself you know it's like a hundred individual donors who are each giving a relatively modest amount but who just want to that's the that's the kind of scene we have here and uh yeah no i'm, I'm really touched to be a part of it i will also say that I, my own relationship with the piece has evolved i was approached by the the folks at the american repertory theater in cambridge i was a senior at harvard and um the art is technically part of harvard it's technically part of the university, even though it, it operates independently. And the first draft of it, it was really a student piece. I was, mm. I was writing as I was working on my master's. And so for a little while, I kind of had a difficult relationship with this piece, because I think when you're, when you're a composer in your 20s, you're hopefully going through a lot of seismic creative <laughs> evolution. And so for a bit, it felt like, oh, God, this is such a, you know, such a student piece, such an early version of myself. But it's funny how, I mean, it's not that long. It's, it was only a little, it's th more than three years ago that we first did it. But I, I somehow have more sympathy <laughs> for, for the earlier for the earlier version of myself. Many edits or no? Uh, cosmetic edits. Yeah. I, I made some edits because um, the orchestra used to be a little bit smaller, mm -hmm. but it wanted, it really wanted to be a bigger orchestra. I was writing badly for small orchestra, <laughs> treating it like it were like it were a bigger orchestra. So it expanded a little bit. Yeah. yeah. As we wrap up, just tell me what you're working on right now. There are a few instrumental pieces in the in the pipeline. I've got this crazy idea for a an orchestra piece that would kind of be about how democracy happened and how how humans organize themselves, kind of treating an orchestra as this giant social organism. Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking about the way that an orchestra can either speak as one voice or it can speak as a hundred individual voices or it can speak as a bunch of sections and subsections. So I really want to write a piece that features the orchestra morphing as far as it's who is speaking and how it organizes itself and how things splinter and fall mm -hmm. apart and reform. Excellent. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian.
Matthew O'Coin is L.A. Opera's artist-in-residence. His opera, Crossing, tells the story of poet Walt Whitman's time volunteering in the medical corps during the Civil War. Crossing will be presented in concert at the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Beverly Hills on May 25 and 26 as a co-production of L.A. Opera Off Grand and The Wallace. For more information, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.